So what do you do? The guy in seat 18B asks me. <clears throat> I've just boarded the plane. I put my bag in the overhead bin. We exchanged some pleasantries. I've sat down and I pulled out my book to read. But he ignores the book in my hand and turns to me and says again, <clears throat> So what do you do? <laughs> Mr. 18B, I have a book in my hands. <laughs> Maybe this question isn't a big deal for you. But as a minister, I always wonder how to answer this especially depending on how long the flight is. (laughs) I often think about making something up, something boring like, I'm an accountant, and nothing against accountants. (laughs) Or I'm in school studying pine beetles. (laughs) Nothing against pine beetles or people who study them. But I've never been one for lying, even those small white lies. And I almost always decide it's worthwhile to engage this person, to talk about the faith that I love, to perhaps have some follow-up questions or even be grilled about the faith that I love. So I turn to this gentleman and I say, I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister. Oh. <laughs> oh, he says, and he looks, he looks pretty confused. So I, I jump back in. It's a liberal faith, I, I, I tell him. I say, our roots are in the Bible, but we're not Bible-based. We're, we're bigger than that. It's, it's a non-creedal faith. And he asks a few questions, but it's clear he really, for whatever reason, doesn't want to engage with the minister. So the chit-chat soon peters out, and I open my book. But I'm thinking about that conversation. It won't let go of me. What I wish I had said, and I may try this the next time I'm on a plane, what I wish I had said was this. You want to know what I do for a living? High drama. It has got to be high drama when I do this. (laughs) You really want to know? I'll tell you, my job is to resurrect the dead. (laughs) I'm certain certain he'd be stunned. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? You heard me. My job is to resurrect the dead. And if he didn't immediately page the button, get the button for the flight attendant to come over and deal with me, I'd go on to say and explain more about what I meant. I'd say, my job is to resurrect the dead. Not the literal dead, of course, but the living dead. The ones that are on this plane with us, that are all over this world. Those who are depressed or numbed out or addicted or wondering about their life's meaning and purpose. Those who yearn for something more. For healing, for possibility, for transformation. My job. I would say to him, and the church's job, and by the way, it's a Unitarian Universalist church, is to resurrect the dead. Does it sound extreme to you? Maybe a little bit. But I don't think it's that extreme. Listen to this story of Jamie, and Jamie is a composite sketch of the dozens and dozens of people I've met, and I know you have met. In this story, Jamie grew up in a strict fundamentalist home. Her church and her parents said there was only one right way to believe, one path to salvation. Any other path was a path to hell. In college, Jamie stopped going to church, and she married an agnostic. She was happy, maybe this is your story, I will see. She was happy to be free of church. But after two kids and a career that just seemed to be less than what she had hoped for, she felt this spiritual hole in her life but wasn't sure how to address that. 
One day she heard an ad on NPR. <clears throat> for First Universalist Church in Minneapolis, where love, hope, and forgiveness were alive and well. She was certain a friend had mentioned this church there, maybe once or twice had recommended it even, and so she decided to visit. She comes in and sits in the pew, and through much of the service, she surprises herself by, by weeping. Something deep has been touched. Living waters start to flow again turning the landscape around her dry and dusty heart green and lush and verdant. This is not an uncommon experience. Hear these words from the poet Denise Levertov. Don't say, this is the yearning, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall. That fountain is there among the scalloped green and gray stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that church is about pointing the way to the living water, the fountain, the source within us, with this quiet song and strange power. That's what Jamie encountered that day. Isn't the church about challenging us to connect with our deepest values, to cultivate a spiritual practice that helps us keep our balance, that awakens us to the deeper meanings and purposes in our lives? Isn't the church about resurrecting us, bringing us back again and again to deeper life. We're here. You're here. Because this church, these people, that spirit that moves among us, that resurrects us week after week. Hear again the words from the prophet Ezekiel. Mortal can these bones live. I wish I had brought a skeleton up here with me. I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophecy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. It seems foreign. Every Sunday, though, we sing Spirit of Life. In Hebrew, ruach means spirit, means wind, means breath of life. We ask for that breath, that spirit, that life to come once again and resurrect us Sunday after Sunday. The passage continues, Ezekiel writing, So I prophesied. As I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked up, and there was sinew on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. Prophecy and bones and resurrection and living water, you must be wondering what's going on at First Universalist this morning. Let me give you some context for the dry bones passage. As I mentioned earlier in the reading, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, took 
over Jerusalem in 597 BCE, before the Common Era, he took many of the leading, um, the leadership of the, of the citizens of Jerusalem as hostages into Babylon. Among them was Ezekiel. So he's writing this dry bones passage as an exile, as a hostage away from his homeland. And according to Paul Johnson in A History of the Jews, to Ezekiel and his audience, the resurrection of the dead was a sign, a symbol of the resurrection of Israel. It is a powerful vision of prophecy and hope. This vision can inspire us as well, but here's the rub. Our faith, just by itself, is nothing more than a bunch of dry bones. This faith that sustains and challenges us, that has room for various wide theological perspectives and differences, that suggests love is stronger than death, that hope is more powerful than fear, those ideas are simply dry bones if they are not contained within a larger institutional structure. Without an institution to hold and support and strengthen our religious values, they disappear when we disappear. I can be all for tolerance and the love of God, however I understand that, but when I'm gone, those values go unless they're housed somewhere. As one of our own theologians, James Luther Adams, said, we need church because goodness, love, hope, forgiveness, they must be institutionalized if they are to have any effect upon the world. And the only way to build these institutions, to put flesh on those dry bones, is to give our resources of time and energy and money. This means taking our faith seriously, to know that it has a saving message. How many of you have heard or even said yourself, I thought there was a different way to be religious, but I didn't know a place like this existed? Have you said that? Have you heard someone say, you're all lying, put your hands up. I know a lot, I, I hear this story all the time from people who say, I, I can't believe we found this place. 20 years ago we walked in, we heard John Cummins preaching, it's amazing, it's changed my life. That story is the collective story of many of us. I've always dreamed of a community like this, people say. But our faith without institutional form is simply a field of dry bones. And this is where Jacob Needleman's book, Money and the Meaning of Life, can inform us. Needleman suggests that money has a spiritual dimension and that part of our life energy, you'll remember two weeks ago, I defined money as life energy. Part of our life energy, our money, belongs to that transcendent, to that spiritual realm. Needleman insists that there is a spiritual economy that we must tend to. This is big, life-changing stuff we're talking about here. It begs the question, what if we got serious about putting real flesh and muscle on our shared values and decided we didn't ever want to be a bunch of dry bones again? What if we said, instead of scraping by year to year, wondering if we'll make the budget or have to cut programming or even cut staff, we took ourselves and our faith seriously. The truth is, we can't take anything with us when we die. 
And as the poet Mary Oliver says, we only have this one wild and precious life to live. So when we drill down into the depths of who we are and get clear about our deepest values and priorities, I believe it is easier to be generous. Not because we expect a nice little beachfront paradise in heaven, but because we know money can serve the spirit of life, the spirit of love. So the Beatles got it wrong when they say money can't buy love. Money can buy love. When that money supports an institution that is trying to incarnate love in the world. So here's my challenge to all of you, members and people on the edge of membership, and the rest of you too, to think about the priorities and values in your life. Here's my challenge to you. When we launch the pledge drive in February, I know that some of you here could easily double or triple your pledge. Some of you here could pledge another $100 a month. Some of you could pledge 5% of your income, five pennies on every dollar you make, and it wouldn't hurt you at all. I know there are people here who have lost their jobs, who are not able to pledge more, who will pledge less. That's fine, too. I understand we're in this together. Those of you who are already at that level, thank you. And if you don't want to wait until February, if you're interested in making a year-end gift to animate a particular part of our shared life together, talk to me after the service. I would love to have a chat with you. The point is, whatever you give, we've all got to get serious about money and its spiritual dimensions. As Jacob Needleman says, money is needed to do good things. Particularly in this culture, you have to have money if you want to save the environment, help reform education, feed the hungry, or stop some immoral practice. You need money and you need the help of people with money. I'd like to end with a story from Stefan Jonasson, who's a Unitarian Universalist minister. During the 1999 General Assembly in Salt Lake City, when 4,000 Unitarians came to Salt Lake City Convention Center, Stefan visited the Mormon Temple, and he talked with a couple of people there. At the time, he worked as the district executive, and he had a particular interest in church growth and expansion. He was impressed with how much the Mormons knew about Unitarian Universalists, with our theology, and our relative success at maintaining numbers compared to sort of mainline denominations. And as someone interested in growth, Stefan wanted to find out um, what the Mormons were doing well, because the Mormons, if you don't know, are, are a very rapidly growing faith community. At one point in the conversation, the young man that Stefan was meeting with said, you know, Our research suggests that proportionate to your size, Unitarian Universalist churches attract many more newcomers and visitors than we do. This is the Mormon church talking. Is that so? Stefan asked, trying not to appear as surprised as he was. Yes, it is, this young man confirmed. Your churches are pretty good at getting people through the door, but I'm reluctant to say it. You're lousy at holding on to them once they've arrived. 
Stephen and this young man discussed possible reasons for this phenomenon. How the Mormons are far more successful at holding on to their young people. How they offer a wide range of seeker-centered activities to initiate newcomers into the faith. How they help newcomers get involved in affinity groups and small groups. And how they set high expectations for those who join, challenging them to be generous and responsible with their resources. Perhaps you've expected this part of the story, but what I'm about to tell you is the piece that really matters, the piece I want you to hear. The young man, the, the, the young man went on in this conversation. If your churches were half as successful at integrating and retaining members as we Mormons are, then Unitarian Universalism would be the most dangerous religion in America. Hear this again, people. If your churches were half as successful at integrating and retaining members as we Mormons are, then you Unitarian Universalists would be the most dangerous church in America. Dangerous because we're not just 180,000, but millions. Dangerous because we have a voice in the public square, and when Prop 8 comes up in California and the Mormons are backing that, we're backing other legislation that reflects our values. Dangerous because we're a player in the political and social landscape. Stefan goes on about this young man. He says, he smiled and even winked as he said this, but I knew deep down that he really meant it. I also had a pretty clear sense that he was not much concerned (laughs) that we would ever become that great a danger. But what if? What if we got clear about our, monies and our, va- our money and our values and our faith and the role of the church in resurrecting the living dead? What if our money could help this church bring love and hope more fully into this bruised and hurting world? What if? Congregation, can these bones truly live? <laughs> 